Hey, good morning, CLC. Welcome to church this morning. I want to invite you to stand on up with us today. If I hadn't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Clay, and uh, whether it's your first Sunday here or you've been here from the beginning, our team has been praying for you, preparing for you. We are glad you're here today. We believe God has something for you today, and so uh, we're excited for you. Hey, before we dive into worship and our service today, I want to let you know about something coming up. Like I said, whether it's your first time or you've been here a while, but you're looking to take a next step into church life and find ways to connect and plug in and maybe ways you haven't before, we have Discovery that's starting next Sunday. It's a four-week class all about how to connect to church life and how to, be, how to plug in here and what we value. And so I encourage you to sign up for that. Meet us in the next Steps Room following service. We'd be happy to help with that. But as we uh, move forward in service today, we must take a moment, prepare our hearts for worship by praying the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God, we thank you for today, Lord. God, we thank you that God, um, despite the chaos of life, God, with school starting back and weather being crazy and everything that comes with this season, God, that we can take a moment today and pause and be reminded that you are still God, that you are still good, that you are still on your throne. And so, God, I pray that today, God, that you you would remind us how you gave your best for us. And so today, Lord, no matter what we've carried in, God, we want to give our best for you today. We want to give you our best praise, our best worship, God. We thank you for who you are. And God, we know that today, as you do every week, you're going to show up, God. We pray that you would fill this place with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are so glad that y'all are here with us this morning. So we invite you guys to sing with us. We'll have the words on the screen here. We start our time together in time of song and in time of praise.
before you even get here. Uh, we lift up a prayer because we know that uh, we, we don't know what you're going through, but we know that God does. And He knows exactly the right thing and the way to move in your hearts. And so that's our prayer this morning. Um, I know it often feels uh, difficult to connect in worship. We are so aware of that. There's just all these barriers, right? This morning there's the rain. It could be something that you're going through, something that you're facing uh, in your family. Um, maybe you like the song. Maybe you don't like the song. Maybe you like it and you don't know the song. There's all of these, these things that sometimes uh, stand in the way of us really pressing in um, for what God has for us. And so we want to continue to pray for you, but we want you to know that we're not up here this morning to entertain you. We're not here to, um, to try to impress you at all. We're here to impress Jesus. And so our, our goal is while we're worshiping that you're worshiping with us. And then we're all just pointing to the Savior of the world, who He is. He's the only one that has hope. He's the only one that has truly the life breathing, giving a power to change your life. And so we believe that so much. So as we continue to sing, Let's just block out all of those distractions today and continue to lift up the name of Jesus this morning.
such declaration of, of confidence in you to say you will never fail. And Lord, thank you for being faithful that even when we're not, we call out to you, you answer every time. And God, we know it's not always the way we want you to answer, but you do, but you do. You are faithful. God, and you're never bugged, you're never bummed, you're never upset that, that we're crying out to you you welcome it. Your arms are open wide for us, God. I pray that we would know that, that you are the safe place we can turn to. You are actually our hope in, in times of trouble, and you are our victory in times of praise. Jesus, it's all because of you, and it's all about you. Without you, we've got nothing. And so we thank you for being a God that is faithful, trustworthy, who never changes, and in all your might and all your power and all your glory and majesty, you still, you care about us as individuals. You know us, you created us, you made us, you know how we think and how you wired us. And in, in all those things, you care and you're here and you're present, you're here today. What a thought, God, what a thought. And we're thankful for that. So pray that the word would just reach our hearts, open our eyes, soften our hearts. God, let us see people the way that you see them. Let us love people the way that you love us. We love you so much. We thank you. It really is with such joy and, and, uh, and gratitude that we praise you this morning. So we love you. We thank you for this time. We pray this in your mighty, mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Can we lift a shout of praise to the faithful Lord this morning? Thank you guys so much for being here and for singing with us this morning. Uh, before you grab a seat, if you would, just say hello to somebody around you. Welcome them to church, and we'll jump in.
Welcome to church. We are so glad that you're here because this church is much more than just a building. It's a family committed to loving God and loving people. This church is a safe place for anyone and everyone. No matter who you are, where you came from, or what you look like. Because at this church, we believe that God is many things. But most of all, God is love. And He has called us all to share His love with everyone. Welcome to church. Well, good morning. Hope everybody's doing good this morning. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us today at Community Life Church on this, whatever that is, Sunday morning outside. My name is Scott Verano, and I'm the lead pastor here at Community Life, and it is an honor to have you here in the family room or to have you joining us online. Um, I, I say that every single week, but we mean it. I mean, you, you could be a lot of places, and you made a decision to fight the rain, fight the traffic, and do all of that, and, um, and we just really, really appreciate it. At Community Life, we love God. We love our neighbor. And we believe that our mission is to connect people to Jesus because we believe that Jesus is the source of life. And our hope is that when you discover that source of life, that yes, you'll hold on to it, but then you will share it with as many people as possible because we believe that source of life still changes hearts and lives today. And so um, we look forward to standing alongside you in this journey. And if there's anything that we can do, please, please, please let us know. And uh, we consider it an honor to be able to stand with you in life. Um, so a couple quick announcements, and then um, we're going to jump into a, a, a new series today. So this Wednesday night, right here in the family room at six o'clock, um, we're going to have a family dinner. So we'll all get together. We'll eat. Um, we're going to have some reports that will go out from some of the various committees, give you some updates as to what's going on in the church, how we're surviving or not surviving three services. We'll give you all those updates and just let you have some fun with that. And then we're going to have a few worship songs. Then we're going to do something that I am so looking forward to and honored to be a part of. We will ordain Addie Middleton um, on Wednesday night. So, so thrilled. Addie has the gifts and graces of pastoral ministry, and um, I look forward to honoring that on, on Wednesday. So, so welcome you to come and join us. Uh, we do have childcare, so, or, so if you're just looking for a, a night out, consider it a dinner. Um, you can come, we'll feed you. You can drop the kids off and have a good time. That's a different approach to Wednesday night. And then uh, last but not least, I believe Clay mentioned it earlier, we have our discovery class. So if you've been coming for a little while, you want to find out more about the church, uh, that kicks off next week during the 830 service. So you can come to that class and then stay over for the 10 o'clock service. Uh, but I know he'd love to meet you and, and get you signed up for it. Um, then you can do that in the Next Steps room or use the QR code that's there in front of you. All right. So, um, so today we start a new sermon series called The Gospel According to Matthew. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to take the next four weeks. I don't know how this is possible that we're going to do all this in four weeks, but we're going to take four weeks and we are going to look at the gospel of Matthew. What makes it unique? Why does Matthew write the way that he does? Who was his audience? How did he construct the, the, the gospel narrative? Just unpack so much of that. And, and here's one of the things I'd like to tell you, because if, if you're new, um, this teaching style will be a little bit different for you or... Um, Really, I guess this series is going to be different in nature. Uh, it'll almost feel academic. There won't, there won't be always those warm feelings that maybe you get from some of the series because there's so much knowledge, I think, that's going to be dumped into these series. But, but here's the truth. At Community Life, one of the things that we value is, is a practical faith. 
that we believe at the core of our being that the words that were written 2,000 years ago, and in some cases in the Old Testament, 3,000 years ago, are just as relevant today as they were the days that they were written. So us studying and applying and learning and digging into all of this, it really, really matters. And so our hope is that you'll learn something new about the Gospel of Matthew, and the next time you open it up to read it, there'll be pieces of it that you'll understand better. So that's kind of the goal of what we're shooting for. And so we'll start right off the top with what I like to say is a trick question. So prepare yourself before you shout out an answer. Um, how many gospels do we have? How many? One. That's a good answer. You guys cheated. The first 830 service and the 1130 service spot on that 10 o'clock service, they need some work. Um, we have one gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. But it is given to us through four gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, it's not four gospels. They're not all different. Um, it's like this. If you ever imagine if you had uh, some sort of a medium or something that you wanted to get an artist's rendering of, and you went out and you found four artists and you set them to task to capture that medium in whatever print or uh, painting or whatever it was, you know that all of them are going to be vastly different. Um, or they could be similar, but each artist in their own lens, in their own context, will see that in a way and they're going to capture it. And so I'll tell you that when you look at the four after looking at the medium, you can't throw three of them out and just keep one. And so here's what I would say. We have one gospel given to us through four authors that each see a different aspect, a different element that really brings to the surface a, new, a nuance, if you will, for us to grab a hold of and dive into. And we just so happened to be diving into the gospel according to Matthew. Last year at this time, um, we studied the, the gospel according to Mark, and it was a blast. Um, Mark is believed to be the first gospel written. Mark was a contemporary of Peter, and so it's easy to say that, um, that Mark's writing were Peter's remembrances. And when he presented his gospel, the first one out of the gate, he starts off with a bang in a world that is, is basically illiterate. They didn't have the, the ability to learn necessarily unless you were in a profession that did that, how to read. They didn't have writing implements. So Mark's gospel was written to be read out loud. And so if you read it, it's like a one long run-on sentence, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened. Now we're going to look at the gospel according to Matthew, which is going to be different. This is an academic book written for people that were Jewish and understood writing and understood Greek and, and even understood the Hebrew. So it slows down. It has more detail. You have to unpack it, and, um, and I'm excited for it today. So here's one of the questions we start off with. Who is this Matthew character. And I'll tell you right off the top, Matthew is believed 100% to be Matthew the tax collector, the disciple of Jesus. 100% maybe. We're pretty certain of that. Um, but I'll tell you, he doesn't sign the gospel at the end. He doesn't say, signed Matthew the tax collector. He doesn't do that. But what you find when you go back and study is that in the earliest remembrances of the church in antiquity, that they had multiple copies of the gospel narratives and they attributed the names to them that they believed that 
were offered. So whether it was the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to Matthew, or the gospel according to Mark. And, and Matthew's was one of the most prominent because the, the Christian faith or the belief in Jesus really started inside of Judaism. And so it was the one that was utilized most in that early church. And so it was attributed to Matthew. But it's not just because those early churches did that. There are writings inside of Matthew that, um, that are really germane to taxes, to money, to resources, and his insight into that. So there are other things that attribute it to Matthew as well. So for us, we're just going to believe that it was Matthew, um, the, the disciple of Jesus, the tax collector. How is it constructed? Um, I, I love this. This is where I geek out on this um, kind of stuff studying in the Bible. How is this letter constructed or this gospel narrative do you think Matthew just sat down one day and started writing? Probably not. He might have, but more than likely he didn't. Um, what you find is that if you took the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke, and you found the things inside of the gospels that were the same, and you started to pull them out, the first thing you would pull out is almost the entire gospel of Mark. So what biblical scholars believe is that both Matthew and Luke started with the gospel of Mark as a baseline. So in their own context, in their own world, they started with the stories that Mark told and they recorded them down. But then in each one of their contexts, they fleshed the story out a little bit more. Maybe they had more information. Maybe they had somebody in their world that gave them some insight. And so they may have fleshed those stories out a little bit more, but they started there. And when you pull the gospel of Mark out of those letters, then you find something that's very interesting that there are other stories in there that are very similar. And if you take those stories and you pull them out, what biblical scholars believe is that there was another gospel account during that time in antiquity that, that contained some of the sayings of Jesus. Now, the title of this gospel that they give it is, is, the, gospel, um, is, is the gospel according to Q, or in, um, in German, I think it's quella, which means list. And so what it is, is it's a list of sayings of Jesus that both Matthew and Luke have that are very similar. And so if you take out the gospel of Matthew and you take out that, those other sayings or those other lists that are recorded, then what you have less left are the, the writings or the renderings that are unique to both Matthew and to Luke that make them specific to them. So Matthew being Jewish writes to, uniquely to a Jewish audience and a Jewish persuasion. And so what he wants you to know da -da -da -da, is that Jesus was Jewish and that he didn't just show up on the scene, that he was foretold long before. And so in Matthew's gospel, he uses more scripture. Um, he uses more insights, more connections to what we called the Old Testament. It was their testament at the time. So he uses more of those references back because his audience, it was so important for them to know, and for, for Matthew to let them know, that they're not abandoning their faith, that for them to believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the fulfillment of their faith. For Luke, he was a Gentile, and so he writes from a completely different perspective. And so what you have left over are the things that speak necessarily um, to their communities. And so then the next question, and this is one that we usually just throw a date out and let it go. When, when was Matthew's gospel written? Biblical scholars are all over on this one too. So some say as early as 60 AD, late enough that they could use Mark's gospel as a reference, but, um, but late enough that it gave them time to formulate it. Um, but I, I was listening to and reading about um, the date 70 and beyond. And to me, it really, there's something about this awareness 
that really lends credibility to the gospel of Matthew being written after 70. And let me explain to you why. If you don't know anything about Israel or their history, in 66 AD, there was this thing known as the Jewish revolt. It's not a thing, it's a revolt. Um, where the Jews were just finally sick and tired of Rome. And, and those undertones show up in all the Gospels. But the Jews are tired of Rome, their oppression, the taxation. And um, one of the tipping points that really set this off is one of the Roman leaders in Jerusalem decides he's just taking all of the temple tax. He's going to take it for himself. He's going to send it back to Rome. And this starts a firestorm. And the Jews rise up and they do everything they can to push Rome out. And between you and I, that's not a country that is designed in such a way as to fight battles and to push back against Rome. And so over the period of 66 through 70, Rome just decides they're going to come in and they're going to crush and they're going to prove and make a lesson of Jerusalem. So they defeat the Jews all the way through and ultimately they get into, into 70 AD into Jerusalem and they make their way to the center of Jewish worship, which is the temple. And they kill everyone in the temple and then they destroy, tear down, burn the temple to the ground. Now you may say, Scott, why is that important? It changes the face of Judaism forever, that moment going forward. And so it's one of those watershed moments. Think about the United States. And in a few days, um, we'll, we'll remember 9-11, where you were. Um, you'll remember what took place on that day, the day when we were all just cruising about our life, and then we were very aware that not everybody on this planet thinks that the United States of America is fantastic, right? Do you remember being shocked by that? And then all of a sudden, we become aware of all of these other nations that are around, and it changed who we were as a nation. Um, prior to that, think of Pearl Harbor. Same thing, waking up the sleeping giant. Well, what this did inside of Jerusalem or inside of the Jewish faith, and this, that date's important to remember in, in your studies, your Jewish studies, is it changed the way they went about their faith. And the true heroes of Judaism during that time are the Pharisees. Now, that's going to sound odd, but the Sadducees were more focused on temple worship. And so when the temple was destroyed, they really lost their way, lost their prominent role. And the Pharisees, they rose up as the ones that would figure out how the Jewish faith would make it without having their most valued center hub of worship, which was the temple. All of their festivals, all of their time of worship was all geared towards the, towards the temple. And what the, the Pharisees did is they took and they turned it all towards the community and all towards the synagogue. Every one of the communities had a synagogue. And that's where those times of worship would now be, be focused. Now you say, Scott, why does that matter? And how does that relate to our story? Well, imagine during this time, just prior to 70, if you are a Jewish believer in Jesus then you were allowed to worship right alongside all of the other Jews. You could go to the synagogue, you could go to the temple, and nothing was thought of it. You were just considered to be a part of a sect inside of Judaism. No, no challenge, just you believed what you believed and you could go alongside with everybody else. Well, when the temple was destroyed and the Pharisees took over kind of as the ruling religious power, they really started to tighten down and they got rid of all of the um, extra offshoots, if you will, of Judaism and started to cut them out because they needed to stay as, quote, pure and as tight to what they believed so that they could preserve the faith. And so Christian, or not, they weren't called Christians, but Jewish believers in Jesus at the time found themselves now being ostracized, 
pushed out of the synagogues and shoved out of their opportunity from worship. They've lost the temple and now they've lost the synagogues and they're shoved out. So what you, discern, what you decide, or what's the word I'm trying to say? What, what you discover is when Matthew writes his gospel, he really addresses two things. The first is this, remember his audience is Jewish, is he wants his audience, his Jewish audience to know that if you are going to believe in Jesus, you are not abandoning your faith. That even though the world shoves you out, pushes you aside, if you believe in Jesus, Jesus really is the fulfillment of all things in, inside the Jewish faith. That's what Matthew would want his audience to know. Using Old Testament scripture, words from the very beginning, connecting them back through the lineage, doing all of those things. He anchors his congregation in that faith. But here's the second thing he does, is that throughout his gospel, um, he makes references to this Jewish faith now starting to open and be more inclusive of the Gentile faith. So as they got pushed out of the synagogues and out of their communities, they find themselves moving to the West, surrounded by Gentiles, and guess what? The Gentiles are responding to the faith. And that really kind of freaks them out. They're not sure what to do with it. So when someone like Matthew goes back and studies scripture, he finds areas that reveal to him that this was God's plan all along. And that not only was Jesus sent for the Jewish nation or for the Israelites, but he was also sent for the rest of the world. And so today in the message, as we look at the infancy narrative or those first stories, I think it's gonna be so clear for you to see those two paths as we travel along through the gospel. Is this interesting at all? Okay, all right, thank you all. Y'all are so awesome. And if it's not, at least thank you for saying that. So, um, so keep those two things in mind as we dive into these first, uh, this first verse, really. So Matthew chapter one says this. It says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you take Matthew one and you compare it to Mark chapter one, Mark's gospel is exciting. It's engaging. It starts off the good news of Jesus Christ, and boom, and then he takes off running. What does Matthew do? Let me tell you about the genealogy of Jesus. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And I mean, on and on and on and on. And uh, there are very few things in this world that are more boring than listening to someone tell you about their genealogy. So for all my folks out there that love studying your genealogy, please don't be offended by that. Go find out who you are, learn all of that, but have a little pity on the rest of us. Give us the highlights, right? Like just the big names. Okay, I, that was received terrible in all of the services, but you get it, all right? So to read this, you have to know it's a scholarly account. Matthew is digging deep and he's going right after it to go ahead and set the stage for us. Um, this first verse, if you look at it in the Greek, is so powerful. In the Greek, he literally says, the book of the Genesis or the origins of Jesus the Christ. And then he mentions two titles, son of David and son of Abraham. So let's unpack those for a moment. Those are, those are both king terminology, son of, like son of God, son of David, son of Abraham. Those are inheritance terms. Comes all the way back from Mesopotamia. How all of that connects back through just blows my mind as I studied, I love it. But son of David, son of Abraham. So if you've never been in church before and you hear the name David, you probably have some context, a little bit. Think David and Goliath. So David was one of, if not, I'll say he was, the most prominent king in all of Israel in antiquity. 
Israel loved him. Israel was the most prominent under the rule of David. They um, just were amazing what they were able to accomplish. David was known with a, as a man who had a heart after God. And so as far as the people of Israel, if you're Matthew and you're a writer and you want to connect Jesus to someone, if you can connect him to David because of the prophecies and because of who he is, you have done something good, right? So you can see him connect him back to the Jewish faith. But the son of Abraham is interesting. So for us, most of us are not Jewish. We would be considered Gentile. We think of Abraham and we just glom him into the pile as another one of those beginning. But if you think about Abraham's story, Abraham came from Ur the Chaldeans. And when God spoke a word over him, and you have to remember he was pre-Moses, pre-law. And when God spoke a prophecy over him, he said to Abraham that you will be the father of what? Many nations. And so Abraham is set in the gospel of Matthew as the lineage or the big net that now will pull in the rest of the generations. And so in the very first verse of the, of the gospel of Matthew, you see both tracks. Matthew wants you to know that Jesus was connected to David as being the son of or related to the king and related to Abraham as in the first place, the starting with the Gentiles and the future plan for pulling the Gentiles all the way in. He connects them back to both and you can see both of those threads running through both of it. So I, I thought that was interesting when you dive into it and you look at it. Now, you read through the genealogy and if you're just like me, when you first read these things, they're names. And a couple of them jump out and you're like, that's interesting. And for Matthew to write this genealogy, it's it's rock solid, it's tight, it pulls all the names in, but he does something that I think once again foreshadows that narrative of including the Gentiles. He includes four problematic scenarios and they're all women. Not, they're not problematic because they're women. <laughs> That'll get me in trouble. They're, they're problematic because of the women and their connection. These four women start as outsiders or start as less than desirable, or start as a moment of adultery and murder, and somehow through the greater plan of faith, God grafts them in, and so Matthew incorporates them into the genealogy of Christ. And so here are the names, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and, and he just says the wife of Uriah, which we know is Bathsheba. So the story of Tamar, I believe, is found in Genesis chapter 38. I'll just tell you it's X-rated, that guarantees that you'll go read it. Um, it's found in chapter 38, and it's the story of, of a woman who's married to this Jewish family, and she does not have a child before her husband dies, and so the Jewish faith says that she should be assigned another son until she can have a child that then connects her into the family, and they refuse to do that, and so she dresses like a prostitute, has relations with Judah, you remember that name, and she becomes pregnant, and when Judah's ready to kill her because she's pregnant, she produces he doesn't know it was her. She was dressed differently. He produces the signet ring and he has no choice now because he's the one to blame to incorporate her into the family. Can we say that's problematic, right? So when you look at the story, Matthew incorporates these stories into the genealogy. And so you see this um, plan of God pulling in those on the outside and connecting them in ways. And you can look at the other three. Think about Bathsheba, um, adultery with David, murder of Uriah, and um, God still uses her to bring about and to continue on the lineage that ultimately leads to Jesus. Now, why do I say that? 
I say that because in the next verses that we're going to read in verse 18 on, you are confronted with Mary and you're confronted with a young Mary who's pregnant. She's betrothed to be married, but she's not married. And Joseph has a decision to make. And that decision falls right into line with the problematic scenarios that we just read about, not in the exact same way, but it's one of those outliers And Joseph makes a choice to include them. So let's read the narrative. And um, there are so many parts of this that that just my brain twitches when I read it because it pulls you into the creator. Okay, I'm just going to read. Verse 18. So it says, Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, remember that name, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So they were pledged to be married That means that uh, Joseph had time to build a home and to establish a place for them and then they would be married and they would move in together. While Joseph was establishing a home, finds that she's pregnant and and Matthew tells us with the Holy Spirit. Now, before I read the rest of the story, I want you to think about the name Joseph for a moment. If you go back into your Old Testament roots, do you guys remember a person by the name of Joseph? And there was a trademark of Joseph, and if you remember this, then you get extra trivial pursuit points today. Joseph was known to be a dreamer. You remember Joseph as a, as a young man had a dream that, um, that he was a star and he was elevated above, or maybe it was a moon, and all the stars came around him and worshiped him and he interpreted it as his family was gonna worship him and that God would elevate him. And then he had another dream and he shared it with his family and his family loved his dream so much that they tried to kill him. But they were unsuccessful. They just threw him in a pit. And then they realized, you know what? Let's just do something better. Let's make some money off him. And so they sell him into slavery. And Joseph is taken through a series of events all the way to Egypt. And while Joseph is in Egypt, he interprets the dream of Pharaoh. Pharaoh brings him out of prison. I mean, all sorts of crazy stories. And, um, and he interprets the dream for Pharaoh that there's going to be a famine in the land. And so Egypt, the Pharaoh, is able to stockpile grain, enough grain that they're able to take care of Egypt and all the surrounding nations. Well, surprisingly, Joseph's family falls on hard times when a drought hits and they are forced to flee to exile to Egypt. And there is Joseph just like the dream that he had. And his family is moved into Egypt in exile. And that's where you get the beginning of their time inside of Egypt. So remember Joseph, the dreamer and the exile in Egypt as we read this. And so verse um, 19, it says, her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man, that's important. So as as a Jewish believer, he's setting him aside as a person who's righteous and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a what? A dream. Matthew is bringing you back to the Old Testament to think about another Joseph and said, Joseph, son of David, there's king language, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So now Joseph is is confronted with a challenge. Verse 21. She will bear you a son and you are to name him Jesus. That's a name that would have made sense to, his, to Matthew's congregation because it's connected to the name Joshua, which means savior. And he tells you what it means. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall name him 
Emmanuel. And what Matthew does is once again, he interprets what this name means, which means God is with us. So not only the savior, but the God that loves us enough to come and be present and to be with us. And so he speaks that into, into Joseph's life and Joseph has a choice to make. Verse 24, when Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she born a son until she had born a son and named him Jesus. All right. So at the end of chapter one, in the infancy narrative, you are confronted with so much rich history that connects back to the Old Testament. And you are presented with Jesus and this weird unfolding story that connects to the roots of your faith. If you're Jewish, can you see all of that woven throughout there? And Mary's connection in is reminiscent of the genealogy. And it's just another case where God has done something profound to bring us to bear and to bring his son into this world. So now I'm going to paraphrase for you chapter two, because I think there's, and this is where my mind was just blown. So in chapter two, what Matthew does is he gives us the magi or the wise men, right? So think Christmas now. It's, we're still a little early, but it's okay. So think Christmas. So then you have these wise men that travel all the way from the East and they show up. So think Matthew, Gentiles crossing the known world at the time. They show up in Jerusalem looking for the son of God. Now for Matthew, you're showing Gentiles that are searching, but guess what? They can't figure it out on their own. They have to ask. And so they ask Herod, the king of the Jews, and they ask the scribes and the scribes give them the answer where the son of God is to be born. And they say Bethlehem. And so you have Matthew holding the tension. The Gentiles are written into the story, but they need the interpretation of scripture to be able to find them. They go down into Bethlehem and the story tells us that um, when they found him, they paid homage um, and they were overwhelmed with joy on entering the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and they paid him homage. And then they received the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so you have a story early on of Gentiles inside of Matthew's gospel being witness to the Son of God. Early, early on. It's so powerful how Matthew goes ahead and incorporates that. And so then they, um, they, they have, uh, then you go on in the story and they're warned to return a different way because of Herod. And when you get into chapter, uh, verse 13, we go back to Joseph and Joseph has a dream and God lets Joseph know that Herod is about to come after and try and kill Jesus. And where do they go? Where do they flee to? E just everybody say Egypt. They flee to Egypt. Now just think about that for a moment. If you go back in the story of Israel, they have to go to Egypt to flee. And now you have Jesus, Mary, and Joseph fleeing to Egypt to get away from Herod. It parallels the story of the Jewish faith. They probably used the money from the gold, frankincense, and myrrh to get there. But then for a thousand Jesus dollars, Herod comes out and he destroys all the children in Bethlehem. And who does Herod represent in the story? If you think about Old Testament, Pharaoh. Do you remember the story of Moses? Pharaoh was killing all of the firstborn children. Herod comes in, kills all the firstborn children. Moses survives. Jesus survives. You guys all with me? Like, I don't know about you, but at my Bible geekery, I don't know if that's a word or a phrase, but when I see stuff like that, it just, it blows my mind how Matthew so beautifully just wove all of that together to connect his audience, but also allow the greater story to be revealed in a way that, all, that connects um, all of the uh, the Gentiles as well. 
So then if we were to, to skip ahead to next week's message, they come back from Egypt and then the story jumps ahead to John the Baptist. And what does Jesus do? He goes through the waters of baptism. It's just like the story of Egypt. Then they go through the, go through the Jordan River on into the promised land. And he goes into the... So anyways, you guys got it. So if I was to stop right here, the two main things I want you to know about the text, and once again, this is academic. It feels kind of cold as information, is that for Matthew, writing to his context... He wants them to know that to believe in Jesus does not mean you're abandoning your faith, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and you can believe in Jesus and still be righteous according to the law. That's Matthew. Matthew wants his congregation to know that. But then the second part is that Matthew wants you to know that that fulfillment of the law inside of Judaism does not just stay there, but now it is starting to explode and go out into the world. Think Abraham, and it's going to start being that big net that starts to gather in Gentiles and offer them a hope to the rest of the world. Those are the two big points that if you were to sit down tonight and start to read, I challenge you to look and see if you can't find those edges, those meanings that go through. But here's the feel good for me. So if I was to, if I was to try and tell you what I love about this study and what I've already discovered to this point, in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew tells us about his entry point into the story. And so Matthew is a tax collector and scripture tells us that, that Jesus shows up to Matthew, a tax collector, and Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew does. Then the very next verse has Jesus joining Matthew at his home and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so here's Matthew, a tax collector, and I'm going to tell you some things never change. It doesn't matter how many years go by. In, in that time, if you were a tax collector, you were disdained. In this time, if you're a tax collector, you're not a hero, right? People just don't tell anybody. You probably don't lead with that as your, as your opening introduction. But during that time, if you were a tax collector, your fellow brothers and sisters hated you. You were despised. They pushed you to the side. They didn't want anything to do with you. And so in Matthew's, in that chapter nine, the very next thing that the Pharisees say about Jesus is who is this Jesus that eats with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, I want you to know, I did not come for the healthy, but I came for the sick. And then he quotes Hosea. And in Hosea, he says, I require mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, what Matthew encountered in Jesus was the opposite of what he was facing in his life every single day. He was sick and tired of having long bony fingers of religion pointing in his face, telling him how he was not righteous and he was corrupt and he was not a part of the faith and he was not a part of, of Judaism. He had all of these religious fingers pointing at him and what he discovered in Jesus is someone who showed him mercy and someone who loved him and someone who stood alongside him, someone who loved him just as he was, but wasn't willing to leave him in that state, but wanted to invite him into a process of transformation. And so you see the arc of Matthew's life from somebody who was excommunicated and put out of his faith to now somebody who would be the most ardent defender of the Jewish faith. Why? Because he truly discovered the heart of God in the revealing of Jesus to the world. And so what the feel-good moment for me as we talk about this sermon is you may be here today and you may be sick and tired of dealing with cold, heartless religion. And what I would say to you is I hope and I pray that you get the opportunity to meet Jesus, that Jesus loves you. He'll never point his finger down your face and, and, cast a, and, 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 and belittle you. He'll just never do it. What Jesus will do is he will love you right where you are 
And then he'll bring you through a process of transformation where you start to find healing and restoration and hope for your life. And that is the Jesus that Matthew wants you to know and get to know. And I pray that over these next four weeks that we get acquainted with Matthew and we find out how much he loves Jesus because I'm gonna tell you that's how much Jesus loves you. Amen? All right. I'd like to invite our communion stewards to come forward. And I think it's so perfect today that we are able to receive communion because it's in Matthew's gospel where Matthew records for us the words of Jesus, the broken body and the shed blood. Now that shouldn't surprise us because it was during the Passover meal. And so Matthew trying to anchor us in the Jewish faith is gonna let us know about the Passover and the lamb and the broken body and the shed blood and how that became for us the hope and the forgiveness of sins. And so today, 2,000 years later, as we gather in Gulf Reese, Florida, the words still ring true. The words that Matthew gave us, that it was on the night that he was betrayed, that Jesus took bread. He gave thanks because that's exactly what the rabbi would do. But then he broke it. And it was symbolic of what would happen to him in the next 24 hours. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat, do so in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the body that would be broken for you. And then in the same manner, he took the cup. And this one sometimes eludes us. He said, this cup represents a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you drink, do so in remembrance of me. Blood had to be spilled to cover and to offer the payment for the sins. And Jesus, as the only spotless, perfect lamb or person, the symbolism that's all there, when his blood was shed, it offered us the ability to be forgiven and to be whole. And so today as we gather, we can still receive his broken body and his shed blood in the form of these elements that are more than just juice and more than just bread. They represent to us the presence of God in this service today, calling us to something deeper, calling us to faith and to hope. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. And I thank you for this moment. I thank you for the message. God, I thank you for Matthew. As a person who spent so much time being ridiculed and ostracized and pushed to the side, he found himself as the voice that would train future generations to understand and to know the true revealing of your son, Jesus. And so God, as we gather around this table, I thank you for the words that were spoken. That today, this bread and this juice that they become a part of our lives. They offer us sustenance, the broken body, the shed blood, so that when we go out, Lord, it gives us the awareness and the understanding that we are more to this world than just people. We are sons and daughters of the King that represent Him. And as our bodies are broken and as our blood is shed, sharing this good news, Lord, I pray that life continues to unfold in the hearts and lives of those people around. People were flocking to your son, Jesus. And God, I pray that the same would be true here in this place during this time. We love you. We trust you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, a, a few points um, for you to know that if you're a guest with us today and you're not a member of the church, that's okay. Our table is an open table and you are welcome to join us uh, for communion. Um, and so just come forward with everyone else. We have a gluten-free alternative. If you have dietary needs, if you'll come forward I'd, and just meet me here at the table, I'd be more than happy to serve you. Um, we receive communion by intinction. And so as you come forward, if you'll just hold your hand out, we'll place a piece of bread in your hand and then you can move over to the cup and you dip 
the bread and the cup and receive communion that way. If you um, are nervous about the germs and the colds and the things that are going around, at each one of the stations, we have individually wrapped communion elements. You can take one of those. You can take a few of those. Maybe you have family members at home that weren't able to attend with us today and, and you can offer communion to them as well. And last but not least, on the stage, we have baskets. When we receive communion, uh, we take up a communion offering, and uh, we use that offering right here in this community to help with water bills, electric bills, all sorts of things to help, to help families. And thank you for, for making sure that fund is, is taken care of. Well, I invite the first few rows to go ahead and stand and uh, make your way forward and receive communion with us today. Let's just sing this one more time together. The chorus, I'm no longer 
mornings where we can come together and receive communion together as a, as a family. And through that, it's almost like we're reminded of the Easter story, right? The, the sacrifice, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And in context of this morning's scripture, we're also reminded of the Christmas story. And I don't know about you, if that's getting you in the, the Christmas spirits, I have good news for you. Hobby Lobby's been selling Christmas decorations for three months now. So you can go and get your fill and start uh making your house look like how you feel on the inside. We're so thankful that you're here. If this is your first Sunday with us, uh, we just wanna have a conversation, help you get connected to the life of the ministry, the life of the church here at Community Life. And you can do that just right out in the lobby in our next steps room. Uh, the police officers typically don't stop traffic when it's raining outside. So, uh, so please be careful when you leave this place and maybe even consider taking a lovely drive down Soundside to the light at Nanahala. But uh, before we go, let's pray. Father God, we love you. We are so thankful for the ability to come together as a family and receive. And remember, God, remember what you've done for us, the sacrifice, the love, the life that you gave so that we can have life connected to you. I pray that as we leave this place, we would do so with that spirit. God, taking your heart, your life, your love with us, God, and connecting people all around us throughout the week back to you. There's some of us here who are, who are just needing an extra dose of you, an extra, an extra piece of, of your grace. And so God, I pray that you would help fill us up. And if we are in need, help us uh, just be so incredibly uh, filled with your spirit, with your love, with your forgiveness, uh, with your comfort and peace. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. We love you all. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>